When you hear the word hydro, what does it do to you? Here it is again. Hydro. Nobody's cheering. I don't even see a smile. And this is over the radio. I can pretend to see all kinds of smiles. I don't see any smiles. Hydro is not the happiest of happy topics. But, but, I think it's time we realize just how well London is doing hydro. And we're going to find out today if, in fact, we could be paying more if we lived outside of London. Now, we do know some of the horror stories of people, especially in rural parts of this province, and the hydro bills that they can rack up at times. But how about London? Exactly how much of that bill that you get in uh, either electronic form or maybe even still through the mail, the one that you open up and go, no smile, no cheering. How much of that bill is actually controlled by London Hydro. We're going to find that out in about an hour from now because the CEO of London Hydro, Vina Sharma, is going to be joining us in studio. We are also going to talk with Paul Pilato, who is already declared in the race for mayor of London. We're not that close to October yet. We still have a heat wave or, what, six, seven to get through. We're going to get one this weekend. 33 without the humidity on Sunday? Did John Wilson say that? I think so. Whew, 33 without the humidity. So summer is still here, but we've now finished up the provincial election campaign. We're now moving into the municipal election campaign, and Paul Pilato's got a town hall coming up tomorrow. So he's going to join us in about a half hour from now. As well, you may have seen it, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided by a vote of 5-4, which appears to be Five Republicans to four Democrats, interesting how that worked, to uphold the travel ban in the United States. Well, we'll hear from an an immigration lawyer and see exactly what we need to make of this, get some insight into it. And we're also going to talk substance abuse. I don't know if you've seen what everybody's share is across the country. You may not have an issue with substance abuse, but it averages out right now to about $1,100 a Canadian, somewhere around there. So it's a pretty big issue, and we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. I want to begin with Call the Office, though, and you may have heard on the 96 take, or you may have heard this morning on the Taz Show on FM 96, Tony Lima, one of the owners and operators of Call the Office, appeared on the show And he was talking about the situation that came up yesterday from the 980 CFPL newsroom when they discovered that there was a listing online to lease, call the office, lease a location that if you have lived in this city starting around college or university age, call the office became a part of your life. And if you are still that age, it still is a part of your life. You want to go see live music? You can see it at a number of great spots. But you can count on it at Call the Office. I mean, think back to what people would be saying. If you've lived around this area for 20, 25 years, that's where I saw Sloan, or that's where I saw The Watchmen, or that's where I saw The Tragically Hip. Drop the one and all, Call the Office. 
just driven from the nation's capital on the wings of horses. We drove very fast to get here, and we just got here about about 10 minutes ago and set up and all that kind of stuff. Glad to be here. It's Mr. Rock Langwell playing guitar here. Johnny playing the drums. Bobby Baker, Gord Sinclair. We got lots of rock and roll coming up. It's pretty hot in here, so I think the only thing to do is dance and sweat like crazy because you're just going to end up getting that thing. Nervous little perspiration that's going to bother That is from an actual tragically hip show. Pretty early one. They may have had two albums out. That's how early that is. So thanks to FM96 for that. But the key to this seems very financial. 980 CFPL's Devin Peacock was on with Taz and Jim this morning on FM96 and asked Tony Lima about operating a place like Call the Office. What's the uh, live music business like today? Uh, does it suck as much as it always has? <laughs> yeah, sure it does. It's I, a tough game. It's a it's a tough game. And uh, well, again, you look at the venues that are no longer in the city, live yeah. venues. Well, I mean, a lot of places like Call the Office at you know in cities across Canada and the U.S. Like a lot of places that were around when we started, they're gone. And uh, you know, it's it's tough, and you need somebody who has a passion for it, who's not. Uh, you know, the bottom line is not lucrative, um, you know, in live entertainment, mm-hmm. um, except, you know, at a, I mean, obviously at a certain level it is. But Now, he made that point, and that's one that you need to listen to very carefully because everybody always thinks, hey, we'll just open a bar. You know what would be great? Let's open a restaurant. It is not as easy as opening the doors and having people wander in, and it is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week gig. And when you listen to Tony talk about it, you can hear some of those financial realities where, yeah, you've got a passion for it, but how long are you going to chase that passion if it's not making you wealthy? And this is a sad thing. So it's a story that we will continue to watch closely, but it does come down to being very, very financial. And when you look at some of the expenditures, they've got a GoFundMe campaign that they've started that looks to repair some things, but eventually... As with everything, you come to a point where you say, yeah, I've been doing this for a while, but I got to stop doing this. And maybe that's the case for Call the Office. Does it mean an end to it? That remains to be seen. When we talk about expenditures, sometimes you run into unnecessary expenditures. If you move into a new house and... Banks usually make this very easy. You can scan down all of your spending for a month, and you can see, okay, well, this much went here, this much went here. It's very easy to budget in 2018. And if you move into a new house, you realize very quickly, wow, we seem to have a part in our budget for hydro. We have a part in our budget for heat. We have it for food, gas. Oh, and Rona. Oh, and Walmart. Yeah, we've got those categories as well. And sometimes you find things that feel absolutely unnecessary, where you've heard the old thing about, well, how much do you spend on a coffee a day? Well, if you're spending three bucks on coffee every day, that's a thousand bucks a year. If you're spending this much on this every week, that's going to be $2,000 a year. If you're able to quit smoking, you can take a vacation that costs you four to $5,000 a year. You've heard all of those things. Well, when we look across the country, a pretty staggering number came out today. That number was $38 billion. You know what that is? 
That is, according to a new report, the cost of substance abuse in Canada. Not just opioids, not hard drugs, starting with things like alcohol and tobacco. Substance abuse is costing this country $38 billion a year. In a moment, we'll speak with someone who can help to explain where that number comes from and what it actually means. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. When you say $38 billion, you might as well say 38 gabrillion, 38 bazillion. It's difficult to comprehend how much that truly is. If we can break it down into each and every Canadian, somewhere around a grand each. So if you've got a family of five, that's 5000 for you. If it's just you and a significant other, that's ah, only two. It's only 2000 for you. Because there is a new report that is out, and it is looking at the economic cost of substance abuse in Canada. Now, they have singled it out to 2014 because it takes a while to process some data. So they say it's about $1,100 for every Canadian. And this comes from the Canadian Center on Substance Abuse and Addiction, partnering with the Canadian Institute for Substance Abuse Research. We are lucky enough to be joined by Matthew Young, a senior research and policy analyst at the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction, right out of Ottawa. Matthew, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. $38 billion is a really big number. If you went to the federal government and said, hey, guess what? I, I was walking up the steps here and uh, I found $38 billion. Could you guys put this to use anywhere? I'm not sure if there's anything you, you could see it used for. They could find quite a few spots for it. When you look at $38 billion when it comes to substance use and abuse, how do you put this in perspective? Hmm. Well, I mean, we can look at how uh, how costs you know have changed over time. So we've looked at uh, we we did we conducted a very comprehensive study using some of the best data available, um, and we looked at a number of different uh, cost categories. So we looked at the costs associated with uh, providing health care for people that have uh, substance use related um, health care conditions. We looked at the costs of uh, associated with lost productivity. So that's somebody who may be absent from the workplace due to death or disability. We also looked at uh, criminal justice costs. So these would be the costs associated with policing um, crimes that are associated with alcohol and other drugs, but also the uh, court costs and uh, costs associated with incarcerating individuals for uh, drug and alcohol-related crimes. Um, And then we looked at it across a whole range of substance use categories. So we looked at alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, opioids, um, and then a number of other categories, including cocaine and, uh, and other drugs. And we did find that you know the cost was about thirty-eight billion dollars a year. Um, it had increased by approximately fourteen percent from two thousand and seven to twenty fourteen. And the highest, uh, the the costs, seventy uh, percent of those costs uh, were accounted for by the two most widely used and legally available substances, and that's alcohol and tobacco. Now, when you went into looking at some of this data, sometimes people will have an idea in their head as to what they will uncover, and then it's always interesting to see how that measures up. Did you have any idea as to what you expected this to be? Uh, Not really. I mean, other exercises of this sort that have been conducted in Canada and elsewhere do show that, you know, alcohol and tobacco are are quite high, but that's mainly just because so, so many people... 
Uh, so many people use alcohol and so many people use tobacco. Um, we were a bit surprised to see uh, how much, though, that 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 you know the percentage that they that they accounted for. So, you know, the the highest was alcohol at about fourteen point seven billion. Next highest was uh, tobacco at twelve billion, and then the next highest was uh, opioids. And we all are, hear very frequently about the the tragic toll that opioids are having on our society. But they only cost uh, three point five. Uh, billion dollars. Now, so, we do hear a lot more about opioids and we do hear about numbers going up. Is this a study or or a type of report that you could look to repeat for comparison in the near future? Absolutely, yeah. That's that's the plan. So that was it was it took a lot of work to lay this kind of foundation for this uh for this report and we're going to be updating it uh, as data as data come in because we're at a, we're at a very critical time in Canadian kind of policy making when it comes to uh, substances, right? We're uh, on the one hand, we're uh, we're in the midst of an opioid uh, crisis. We're on the verge of uh, legalizing recreational cannabis, and uh, we've largely, been, in many places, we've been deregulating the sale of alcohol. So moving more towards uh, the availability of alcohol in uh, in super, or more specifically, beer and wine in, in supermarkets. So there's a lot of things happening right now, and so I think it's really key that we we keep an eye on on these costs and harms and and see how they change over time in response to these. Uh, policy decisions. We're talking about the cost of substance use in Canada, which is listed at about $1,100 a Canadian, about $38.4 billion. Matthew Young is a senior research and policy analyst at the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction in Ottawa. You bring up marijuana, and if we look, you did actually categorize marijuana in your report. If alcohol was worth $14.6 billion in substance use, what was marijuana worth? Uh, $2.8 billion it cost. It came in a, a, a distant third from, from alcohol. The majority of the costs associated with uh, cannabis in our study uh, were due to uh, for criminal justice costs, and among those costs, about sixty percent were due to um, kind of uh, policing, court costs, and uh, incarcerations uh, among people who uh, were either possessing, trafficking, or manufacturing cannabis. So it's interesting uh, projecting forward. What, how would we expect these costs to change? So, uh, I mean, whether will use go up or down? That's kind of the million-dollar question. If we assume that it will go up, because that's it's something that frequently does happen when a substance is legalized, we may see some increase in health-related expenditure, but we will almost undoubtedly see some decrease in the criminal justice expenditure. So it's difficult to say to what extent those will. Uh, will 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 function and how much what the end results and end numbers will be, but th- that will be what we'll be looking at uh, moving forward. Finally, who do you hope is able to make use of these stats and do things with these stats? Well, I mean, it provides a really nice baseline for uh, we have we have numbers at the provincial level for for people interested in in tracking these costs uh, provincially, uh, because that's where a lot of the a lot of the policies are are, are changed. Um, so I think we really want to look at our federal, provincial, and territorial partners, and as well as anybody who um, is is uh, is interested in just tracking um, harms and costs of these substances over time. All right. Anywhere we can go if someone was interested in more numbers that we don't have time for right now? Uh, yeah, they can go to our the CCSA website, so CCS, uh, www.ccsa.ca. Um, they can also go to our partner organization's website, and that's uh, uh, CISUR at the University of Victoria.
All right. Well, Matthew, we really appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you for your interest. It's Matthew Young, Senior Research and Policy Analyst at the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. The number stands up, $38 billion. And here's the thing to watch in all of this, because, you know, $38 billion is a big number that draws a nice headline, but Matthew did a very good job of spelling out where this comes from. So the $38 billion is health care costs that are associated with alcohol use, that are associated with tobacco use, opioid use, marijuana use, substance use. So health care costs, not cheap. Lost productivity, that's not cheap. Criminal justice costs, that's not cheap. So when you put those as being the major factors, it does not take long before you hit a big number. Now, what happens in all of this? Because we are entering, in a way, a scary time for some, in another way, an interesting time. Because if you make something hard for someone to get, they're not going to to really push themselves to get it unless they really, really want it. When the temperance unions had things all locked up, when prohibition existed, was there still alcohol? Absolutely there was. You could go to your favorite bootlegger and you could get it. When marijuana was illegal and uh, for a little while till October 17th is still technically illegal, you could go to someone and you could get that. But... The average person probably doesn't bend over backwards to get that done. If it meant going to a bootlegger, eh, maybe I'll just get some for my neighbor every once in a while. If it's recreational marijuana, eh, someone offered me something. You weren't necessarily going and making that purchase. Now, things are different where you do have more and more alcohol available in grocery stores. And that's going to continue. We're going to see more and more of that in Ontario. You are about to see marijuana available at different marijuana stores, and likely the LCBO will take their spot and say, hey, right over here we've got whiskey, over there we've got vodka, and right here got some marijuana. And that's the way that will go. But it will be there. It will be readily available. Now, we can either look at this as being, "Uh uh-oh, that's going to create problems, or we look at this as being, hey, in Europe, alcohol is much different in the culture. Is the culture worse off? No. In fact, they would probably call us more uptight. So it all depends how someone is raised to use it. If there is a substance and a risk of abuse, there is always going to be a part of the population that struggles with that and does wind up in an abusive situation. And we have all kinds of things in place, but it's very difficult. Talk with anybody who has suffered from any kind of addiction, who has been able to get away from that addiction. What do they say? It didn't matter what anybody did. It didn't matter what anybody said. Ultimately, I had to reach a point where I said, I got to make a change. So that's what it comes down to. But we're going to have all of these things more readily available to us. They'll be a part of our culture. And so when the next one of these comes out in a few years, this baseline is going to be really interesting to look at. So remember it now, and we'll revisit it in a couple of years. We'll take a break for news. Jacqueline LaBelle has that. After news, we'll be in conversation with Paul Pilato. He is one of the candidates for mayor. Things aren't necessarily 
heating up right now in terms of the mayoral race, but it's like starting a fire when you're camping. We're we're forming the sticks. We're we're putting them up in in kind of a a nice pointed shape. We're we're getting some scruff to light. That's where we sit. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Before news with Jacqueline LaBelle, we were talking about substance use and the cost of it. We do have issues with substance abuse. I mean, you look at the way fentanyl is claiming lives. You look at the prominence of fentanyl as compared to just a little short time ago. We do have issues. Then you'll read a story that shows, well, we seem to be away from some kinds of issues. Now, I don't know for sure that we do not have something like this in London. I don't think so. But you've got convenience store owners in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Get this. You're a convenience store owner and you have a bathroom that can be used by the public. And you have decided collectively to put in blue light bulbs. Why? That's kind of weird, isn't it? No, actually, under blue light... It is harder for junkies who are looking to shoot up heroin to find veins. So it deters them from setting up shop in your bathroom. I don't think we have those problems in London, and I hope we never have them. Maybe I'm being too naive, but that's an issue they're dealing with in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania right now. We are going to deal with some local issues, some municipal issues, and we're going to do that in just a moment because we're lucky enough to be able to speak with Paul Pilato, who is a candidate for mayor in 2018. He's next. My name is Mike Stubbs. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is supposed to be 33 degrees at some points this weekend. And then we add the humidity on top of that. So to think about a fall election seems so far away, but it really isn't. You watch. It'll come quickly. Joining us right now is one of the candidates for mayor in 2018 in London, Ontario, Mr. Paul Pilato. Mr. Pilato, how's your Tuesday going? Terrific, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me on your show. Well, thanks for being here. And if we look ahead, actually, your Wednesday already has a big event on the calendar. You're hosting a town hall tomorrow. What's happening? Well, it's actually a very exciting uh, next step in our campaign. As you know, we've been working very hard. Uh, I've been preparing for over a year for this uh, for this process, and we started with the Palato Report, and, and you and I have talked about many of the blogs that are in there. It's now some 51 different posts to that. And uh, so over the course of that process, we've been dialoguing with Londoners and asking them what they think uh, are the key issues uh, coming up in the next election. And we've now coalesced that into a platform. So tomorrow night is the uh, launch of our platform. We we like to be first in just about everything, uh, including ultimately the uh, the election itself. So our, our goal is to put our platform out there and then begin a, a very robust dialogue with Londoners about what they think matters and, and how I hope to, uh, to make their lives a little better. For anybody who wants to be there, give us the where and the when. Absolutely. It is tomorrow uh, evening. It begins at 6 o'clock. The doors open at 6. Uh, the presentation will begin at 6.30. I've got about a 15, 20-minute presentation. And then we're going to be taking as many uh, questions from the audience that uh, we can fit in. And uh, we're hoping for a, for a good turnout. It's at the BMO Center, which is the, uh, the soccer fields near uh, Western Fair. And as I say, there's plenty of free parking. There's lots of room to accommodate as many people as we can get in there. And uh, um, I'm looking forward to a lot of Londoners coming in and, and having to listen and, and seeing what really matters to them and hopefully gives them good, good insight into the election coming up in the fall. 
when you are involved in any kind of a race, doesn't matter whether you're driving a vehicle, doesn't matter whether you're using your feet and they have some running shoes on them, there are times when you need to accelerate, there are times when you need to just maintain your speed. How do you gauge when it's, because this is a hit the gas moment, how do you gauge when it's time to do that? Well, I think it's hit the gas the entire time, and and not only do I plan to run that way, but I plan to run the city that way. We are going to work hard every day uh, to help make Londoners' lives better. The more I've met uh, of them and and got to know them, the more I realize that this is a critical election. I know that sounds cliche, but this is absolutely critical. There's a lot of variables on the on the horizon: jobs, creation, tariffs, U.S. protectionism, and that's just on the jobs front. Then we have BRT and the mobility challenge, and then we. Have a lot of issues with our most vulnerable people and some of the challenges we're having in the downtown core and on the streets of our city. So, this is a, a monumental time, and no time can be lost or uh, in this election. And so, we've been hitting the ground running since May first at eight a.m. when we could register, and we're going to continue to do so right through to October twenty-second. And this is a, a key milestone for us, and so we want to make sure we make our platform as available to Londoners as possible, so they have as much information as they can when they head into the ballot. We're talking with London mayoral candidate Paul Pilato again. There is a town hall tomorrow night at the BMO Center. Doors open at six. And the presentation begins at 6.30. You're welcome to attend. You're welcome to come with all kinds of questions as a platform is unveiled. Now, Paul, you talk about jobs, and jobs will come up in just about every campaign, everywhere. And we always think in London, well, we're not creating any jobs. And then we'll hear a story about the tech sector, and we'll see another story about this. But we're still left to wonder whether we could be doing better. Do you think we're doing okay in terms of the jobs that have been created in things like the tech sector, or could we be doing better? We have to be doing better, uh, Michael. We, we're we struggling. We're, we're not uh, putting the runs on the board that other communities are, are getting. Uh, we have blips where we get a, a nice win, say, in the tech sector, but we seem to be losing ground on, on an aggregate basis, and it's been a pronounced uh, loss. We have one-third of all Londoners, working-aid Londoners, are without a job, full-time job right now, and and our social assistance numbers are climbing. Uh, they're up to 21,000 now, and so it's a, it's a double whammy to the taxpayer. And so job creation has to be paramount in this next election. And especially when you think about the the uh, the slowdowns that we're starting to see in some of the sectors and manufacturing, most notably, and the threat of uh, potential higher protectionism. So uh, we're going to make that a, a centerpiece for our election and not just talk about the problem. We're going to talk about solutions and we're going to table solutions with people so they can understand exactly what I hope to do, because uh, I think it's going to be critical to our economy and to our, our not our just our economic future, but our social future as a city. Now, some will look and say, hey, the geography is improving in terms of how far some sectors are coming, uh, and and the fact that that now London can kind of reach out and touch Kitchener, or the fact that this sector is doing this, or the fact that our world is more global than ever before. Is it a matter of, of just attracting what is already there or do we need something like i don't know like a a high-speed rail or something like that to assist us with this sort of thing certainly high-speed rail would be uh, a help in in uh, moving capital into the community but we can't always continually rely on the provincial or federal governments to 
bail us out uh, in job creation or any other problem that we may be feeling. I like to take ownership of our own problems and work those problems and opportunities. We have some excellent opportunities in our community just from a geography perspective, as you say, an educated workforce. We have uh, diversity in our economy and we have a lot of knowledge assets. We have uh, the universities here, we have training schools, we have the trade unions. There is a plethora of opportunities for Londoners in this town, and yet we don't seem to be putting the runs on the board that we should. And so I have a plan on how we're going to do that. And we're going to do that a lot better than we have, and we need to do it a lot better than we have, because if we face the economic fallout that may be coming, it's going to be doubly bad for our community. We're talking with Paul Pilato. He has a town hall tomorrow, and doors open at 6, and things get underway at about 6.30 at the BMO Centre. As part of your Pilato report, most recently, you have written about a number of things. One One certainly is mobility and better transit within the city. How big do you think that is if we compare to jobs? Well, I think the problem I have with this current shift BRT plan is we're putting all of our money and all of our eggs in one basket. And and it's a plan that's way overpriced, and it doesn't necessarily properly reflect the true costs associated with providing the service over the long haul. And uh, given the risk profile of that project, and given the other priorities we have in the community around air travel, around mobility to all parts of the community to get people to the job markets, particularly in the southwest and southeast corners of our city, uh, I think it's a bad plan, and I think it needs to be amended. And so I'm going to be running very aggressively against that plan and in very much in favor of my plan, which is a lot more modest, more measured, less risky, more price-based uh, and mindful of the taxpayer, and more inclusive of all modes of transportation, be it vehicle, bikes, transit, air and rail. So, uh, Mike, I think I've got a good story to tell people. I really hope they come out tomorrow night because if they do, I think they'll be suitably impressed. I give them lots to think about. And I'll also give them an opportunity to start challenging the other candidates. The other candidates are great at problem identification. What we need to be talking about in this community is solutions. I have some that I think are going to make some sense, and I'm going to table them tomorrow night, and I hope Londoners will come in and, and take a look. Fantastic. As a final thing, you have been talking with people. You have been knocking on doors already. The things that you hear from people, what stands out to you? Well, a lot of it, you know, a lot of people are really hurting, and, and we, it's great to talk about grand visions for the city, and, and I certainly have one, and if people ask me how I'm, what I'm running for, I can tell them about the economy, and I can talk about some of the social malaise our city's having, but you know what I hear most of all is just make my life a little easier. That's what I hear from Londoners. We're almost making it hard for them, uh, be it uh, snow removal or road repair or lawn pickup or traffic light synchronization. Just make my life a little easier. And that's what they're looking for, and that's what I'm hearing at the door. And we're going to talk about that as part of our platform. We have a part of our platform called Back to Basics, and it's about taking the municipal services and doing them much better and much more consistently and in a manner that Londoners appreciate and expect and should and, frankly, deserve of their civic government. So I'm excited about tomorrow night. I hope people come out. I think they'll be suitably impressed. Uh, 6.30 tomorrow at BMO, it begins, and uh, I think people are going to really enjoy themselves, and I think we're going to have a great night. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Enjoy. That is Paul Pilato. So, what do you think? Has he hit on the things that you need to hear about just in that conversation? Now, he's not going to unveil his platform here on London Live, but certainly we can recap some things as we move forward. But that is going to be unveiled tomorrow, as he says, at 6.30 at the BMO Centre. And I am interested to hear 
the the S word that Paul Pilato mentioned, solutions, because a lot of times you're right. We've got people who can identify problems. That's easy. Identifying problems, that's really, really easy. Well, this doesn't work. Well, that could be better. Well, I don't like this. It's hard to figure out what to do to fix it. And so I'm, I'm interested to see some of the solution ideas that come forward out of that. Jobs, yes. Transit, yes. Make my life a little easier. Anything else that you think belongs in a municipal campaign? We'll open the phones for a few minutes on this. 519-643-2222. Phone lines are always open. But right now, if you want to give thoughts on what you heard Mr. Pilato say or on whether there's something that would make your life easier, that you say, yeah, people people want you know, things to be better, whether it is snow removal, whether it is A, B, C, D. What is it for you? 519-643-2222. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Argentina about to take the pitch against Nigeria. This is one of the more interesting World Cup matches. Iceland and Croatia meeting as well. Argentina needs a win. We'll follow the first part of that match for you. While that is very interesting on the soccer pitch, that's a long way away from here. That's in Russia. What's interesting to you when it comes to that mayoral campaign? We just heard Paul Pilato talking about, yes, jobs, and we heard him talking about, yes, transit. But the thing that he pointed to was all the little things that would just make your life easier. Is there anything? I mean, it doesn't have to be that big. Is there anything that you would classify that you say, yeah, I'd make my life easier, that you would like to see addressed in either a mayoral campaign or by someone who becomes mayor after the election? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Let's go to the phones with Richard. Good afternoon. How are you, Mike? Excellent. Thanks. I really enjoyed listening to Paul. Excuse me. He brought up a couple of issues that I'm really concerned about, obviously, and that's jobs and transit. But there's one thing Paul didn't bring up, and I wish he would clarify it for us all Londoners. Back on Thursday, May the 3rd, 2018, there was an article, front page article, Mike, on the London Free Press, right, by Megan Stacy, And it says, Candid Palato vows to side with developers. Well, I've got an issue with that. If he means he's going to side with them on a case-by-case basis, then obviously I don't have an issue with that. But if he means that he's going to side them or side with them, pardon me, in each and every case, regardless of whether it's good for Londoners or whether it's bad for Londoners, then I have a real issue with it. I'll tell you, Mike, I will be supporting Stephen Orser, right, as the uh, next mayority uh, candidate in this city. And I'll tell you, as you know, I have a soft spot for QP 107 as a child. If it hadn't been for QP 107 and an old shop steward right going to bat for my father, we would have lost our home on Inkerman Street. I have a real soft spot for QP 107. But if my candidate, Stephen Orser, was to ever come out and say, right, that he would side right with the civic unions in this city in every case, Stephen Orser would not have my support. I would like a mayor who represents all the people of this city, regardless of whether it be civic unions, regardless, right, of whether it be developers, right? It doesn't matter to me, Mike. It has to represent all of Londoners. So I wish Paul Palato would clear that up when I read that front page article. I think Londoners are owed an explanation for that. But anyways, right, I will certainly be 
supporting Stephen Orser right in this civic election. I'd love to see the status quo get shaken up once here in London. You have a good day, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Well, that's something that can be asked tomorrow at the BMO Center. I don't know about you. I'm somebody that favors case by case in absolutely everything. I mean, I I still struggle with people who live on party lines and refuse to go over that party line and vote based only on that one party line. It's case by case. Everything has got to be case by case. Otherwise, you don't necessarily come in with an open mind. You don't come in with an unbiased view. You're bringing your biases in. So I love that. Case by case. Richard, I am all case by case. Thank you for that. 519-643-2222. Marilyn, how are you on this Tuesday? Well, I agree with Richard. I'll tell you something right now that I wish I could articulate like Richard. And that's what I said to you in the restaurant or in Tim's the other day, that I wish I could articulate and get my feelings right out like Richard. I think he's splendid. Anyways, um, I haven't made up my mind. I kind of like Stephen Orser, but I haven't made up my mind yet. Well, you know, I go right back to the days of the first mayor I can remember was Mayor McAllister, and that would be back in the uh, mid-40s. Then I remember Mayor Winnick, and I loved Mayor Winnick. I used to go to St. Angeles Academy on Queens Avenue. Us kids would go around to his real estate office, and he always had a dish of candy there. So we'd get into his candy, and he was so nice. He had wavy hair. And I remember on his birthday, he would rent near his birthday the theater, one of the theaters uptown for the morning, on a Saturday morning. And us kids could go to uh, the, the show for nothing in, in celebration of his birthday. Hmm. That's not a that's, that's very nice of, of him to do that. Well, Marilyn, I really appreciate the thoughts. We'll talk more municipal election as we get closer. You enjoy the day. Enjoy the birds. I've got lots of stories for you. I'm looking forward to hearing every one of them one by one. Okay, dear. <laughs> Take the care. next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 519 You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. We've got to take a break for news with Jacqueline LaBelle. And then here's what we're going to find out after 2 o'clock. How lucky are we to live in London, Ontario, when it comes to our hydro rates? We always hear the story about, well, out in this rural area, this person paid this much for their hydro bill. It was horrible. But how lucky are we to live in London, Ontario? And I use the word lucky, not because I'm trying to be biased in this, but because I have some evidence that shows, yeah, we are luckier than a lot of other centers. Vinay Sharma, CEO of London Hydro, is going to join us in studio. Jacqueline LaBelle is next. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is going to warm up this weekend, and if you're lucky enough to have an air conditioner, you will set it. Maybe it's on already, but at 33 degrees plus humidity, it'll probably be on. Tonight, it's going to get dark at some point. You might still even be up at that time. It's not the longest day of the year anymore. Sadly, we've already passed that by. It's Now it's all downhill into the winter, isn't it? Well, if it gets dark tonight, what are you going to do? You're going to walk over and flick on a light. And look, you can guarantee, unless you are very behind on certain payments, that when you flick that switch, that light's going to come on. That when it's warm, if you're lucky enough to have an air conditioner, when you set that thermostat, 
it's going to come on. We have luxuries in our life that we really don't tend to appreciate because when I say this word, and I said it an hour ago, what feelings come to mind? You ready? Hydro. Again, nobody's thinking, oh, that's a wonderful word. Try it against ice cream. Ice cream. That's it's a much more manageable word. But we are pretty lucky to be able to live in the world that we do where we have the luxuries sometimes of air conditioning, certainly of having a light on when it is dark, certainly of just having hydro. And we want to spend some time talking about where the costs come from, where they're going, and where the future of a utility like London Hydro is headed. And we're lucky enough to have in studio with us the CEO of London Hydro, Mr. Vinay Sharma. Vinay, how are things? Very good, Mike. Thank you. Good afternoon to all your listeners. Let's take a minute to examine our hydro bills because ultimately that's what it comes down to. We're going to address some things like mergers and some of the things that were talked about looking at other municipalities. We're going to talk about some software that London Hydro has been able to implement that other utilities are now looking at and saying, you know what, can we have some of that? Because I like the way that that works. But Vini, let's kind of dial it right back down to our own hydro bill. I think we sometimes lose sight of what we're paying and where those costs come from. If we look at London Hydro specifically, how much control do you have over the numbers that appear on our bill? Yes, Uh, indeed. uh, Thank you, Mike. Uh, So a typical residential hydro bill will run about $90 to $100 a month, okay? Out of which about $20 to $22 is what goes to London Hydro's pocket for maintaining uh, the wires, investing in these transformers and switches and automation that we have. Rest goes to the provincial agencies, transmission uh, companies, uh, energy suppliers, and the various regulatory agencies. So 80% to 78%, uh, roughly in that ballpark, goes to the provincial agencies. So we deliver service to our customers for about 22% of their bill. Okay. And that's all we control. That's all you control. That's all we control. But at the same time, I think we it probably needs to be mentioned that of that 20 to 22 percent, uh, we're doing okay in London, aren't we? We're doing very well. If you compare, as we showed it to our city council yesterday, our cost to our customers on an annual basis, total bill from London Hydro that you pay for London Hydro only is $418 a year. Uh, if you're a customer outside London, which is either one territory, you will pay $995 a year. Whoa. And if you're in Toronto, you will pay roughly $890 a year. So for distribution companies only. So we are one of the very efficient utility in London. And uh, if I compare my neighborhood and peer only, we are the second most efficient in the among them. So it is a, certainly a mark of accomplishment for London Hydro employees. I really feel proud of their work, and I am in small way contributing to that. Could you imagine if you were able to say that to somebody? Hey, Hydro for the next year is going to cost you $418. Now, of course, that doesn't bring it into the city, but yes. that's what London Hydro is actually charging you. About $418, they'd for go, yeah, sure. 
That's, like, where do I sign up? That's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it that's allowed you to create that kind of a difference? Again, $995 roughly for rural customers, $890 in the metropolis that is Toronto, and London sitting at 418. What do you point to? So I, first of all, with all due respect to large utilities, they have a different cost structure. But nevertheless, London Hydro could have moved up if we had not taken care of our business. We are taking care of business. We are deploying technology to automate uh, lots of business processes, so our costs are low, efficiency increasing, and also we are prudently investing in the infrastructure. So, you know, every year we go through budgeting process with the help of board and management. We take very careful look where do we need to invest in the infrastructure because we can invest willy-nilly uh, to replace everything, but they'll cost customers. So we take a very surgical approach, which part of the infrastructure is weak, and let's focus on investing there. Which technology we need so that we can become more efficient in delivering our service to customers. And uh, on the technology front, by the way, uh, just so that our, uh, your listeners understand, technology on a balance sheet is small in terms of the dollar. Infrastructure, wires, transformers, they cost a lot of money. But technology helps become efficient in managing those assets. And we are very prudently investing in technology to efficiently manage, try to analyze data so that we can predict which equipment will fail first. And we can either maintain that to do preventive maintenance or replace it before it fails so that we, our service level can increase. So given automation and level of technology and prudent investment in capital asset, those three along with our employees' committed and sincerity toward their work, commitment and sincerity. I think those are the typical characteristics that are achieving, helping us achieve these results. And I hats off to my employees because they work very hard. to. They understand our, uh, our system that we need to be efficient, and they're helping us becoming efficient. Vinay Sharma with us, CEO of London Hydro. As we look at those efficiencies, we heard you talk yesterday when you were addressing City Hall about software that has really gone over well. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about or is that something different? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I said, technology, which is really software-driven. And I I, I shared with my employees in a town hall meeting that uh, we have to become a digital utility now. So not hydro, but digital. So our board understand that we are now two types of businesses. One hydro, one digital IT. Okay. So significant investment is going in that. And what we have taken, so we could have spent a lot of money on IT, but we took a very careful, same surgical approach that we will choose standard-based technology on a good cloud so that it doesn't cost us to keep everything in our offices. And also, we will do open software. So that's cheap, and we don't pay license costs to producers of those technologies. It's and yet much you can more. still get the software that you need in doing we that? Create. We create. You create We it. create. So uh, you see, there are two paradigms. If you create, you'll have greater value, assuming you're successful in creating it, right? Or you can consume it from somebody who creates it for you. If you consume from somebody who creates it for you, you don't have much strategic value. You're rather beholden to that company. But if you create, you have a strategic advantage. Then that is what we have done. So technology that I showcased yesterday at the City Hall is all created by London Hydro employees. Okay? And that software now is giving us advantage in the marketplace, helping us become efficient, 
this is for our customers, but also, as you mentioned in opening comments, that other utilities are looking at it and saying, can we also share? So our, therefore, strategy is growth is essential, but there are many ways to grow. And one way to grow is to collaborate and share services. So Festival Hydro in Stratford is one good example. Whitby Hydro, they are our collaborative partner. So what we develop in technology is also being used there hmm. as an example. So they get an economical uh, solution for their customers. And by sharing some revenue with them, we offset our cost. And hence, we become efficient. And that's why our cost and our partner's cost remains low. Uh, so that is the sort of uh, high-level view of how we are delivering such an efficient operation in London. Wow. Now, you might go thinking, well, it would be easy to say, okay, just – Go and create that software. So just go in the room over there and uh, don't come out until you've got something done. How do you find the individuals to do that? Because it's not that easy. No, it's not that easy. So that is a different challenge and it is a significant challenge. But I'll share with you some, uh, some stories because this is a very important question you asked. <clears throat> so before even I, we began this, and I think I've been CEO now n- nearly nine years, mm-hmm. and I said, first, I'm going to change the company culture. And I took upon myself to create a culture where we respect each other, trust each other, give time and space to each other to do our work. Okay, And it took me – and it's not done. Journey will never complete. We keep on – so we uh, inculcated that message in employees. We trained them, and we created a happy environment for employees. I say every one of you is capable of doing tremendous amount of work. You need freedom and happiness to come to work so that you can do the work. So we created that first. Then second, when we deploy, uh, embarked upon technology platform, yes, we had a challenge because of our IT department was very small. So we had to acquire a lot of resources. One way we did, and you, you will find it, uh, you know, retrospect very easy to do, but when we were doing it, it was challenging. We recruited, uh, with the university's help, young kids to come in our offices for summer employment. It began about five, six years ago, and we start taking about 25 to 30 students. Okay. We never did student employment before. And we start taking 25 to 30 students into our offices, and we showed them what we want, and they were smart. I tell you, you have never seen such smart students that came into our offices. And 40% of every summer contingent became our permanent employees over time, and we grew with them. So I hats off to the students who helped, who have helped us create this technology. Now, the reason we have been successful is we did not create this as if, as you said, put, lock the door, put them in a room and create <laughs> Make something. Make me some software. No. It has been hands-on from top to bottom. And it's the synergistic development between the people that know the hydro business and the people that know the technology. By putting them in one organization, we were able to harvest the knowledge of the business users along with the technology developers. Then we put one of the dimension. Uh, so first, we did internal uh, standard development and foundation. Now we wanted to develop some application for our customers. So for residential customers, industrial customers, we created focus groups. And uh, as an example, for industrial customers, Budweiser Garden, hats off to them. They really were the key to help us get there, okay? And I give a shout-out to them. Uh, We focus group, they told us what we need in the way of tools from Hydro. We gave them – one year it took us. 
they sat with us every quarter, 17 consumers, industrial consumers. Eh? They are like industry people, busy in their life. They made their life, time available to us, helped us develop that. And that application is now so successful in the marketplace. I just – amazing. Is that successful. the kind of thing that other utilities are looking at saying, please, Mr. Sharma, let me know how you've done this? They're asking for that. Not only utilities, but utilities customers are demanding. Okay? Bell Canada is a good example. They took us from London into Toronto. School board, Thames Valley School Board, they have schools in London, but they have schools outside London. They took us everywhere they are out in, uh, outside London in Ontario. So we are serving the schools outside of London. So by, by then come to residential. Uh, you will love this story. We sent out a little request that we need some volunteers to participate in a pilot project. And we were looking only at 2,000. And our regulator blessed that pilot project. We got 4,340 responses. We still have people on the waiting list. They want to be part of that pilot project. And what is it to do? Well, uh, the pilot project has, uh, with the, in that pilot project, we developed a technology called Trickle. It's a smart app. And it gives customers two options. One, to control their electrical load so that when they can be in the office, they can be vacationing in Florida, they can control everything electrical in their home through that smartphone. And we put devices in their home so that we can control. Second group of participants are on real-time information. So we don't control it, but we provide through the application real-time information. We give them a social benchmarking with their neighborhood. How are they doing dynamically in real-time? So this gentleman sent us a photo. He has put his little monitor on the fridge, and he's showing that in the kitchen when somebody does the cooking, that device within 30 seconds of turning an appliance on shows the consumption in the dollar and cents, how much <laughs> you're consuming. So that real-time information is providing them information as to what it's costing to run AC or oven or the stove or the microwave or the fridge and et cetera. You learn to appreciate it pretty quickly. It, it very quickly. And customers are therefore able to save uh, on their um, hydro. Now, I'm not saying that hydro in Ontario is too costly. Relatively speaking, on world stage, we are good. But in national stage, we could be better. Sure. <laughs> but even then, we are giving our customers these tools and we are developing with their help. They are the one who come to us in a focus group, tell us, this is what we would like to see. So we do that. And there are, out of that uh, about 2,000 in pilot project, 84 are, have become ambassadors meaning they come to us, we organize events, and they tell us what improvement can be made in that program. Similarly, I'm not done yet. There's lots of stories <laughs> like this. So property managers, you know, they have a large uh, property manager group here because there are a lot of rental units for students and whatnot. So tenancy landlord disputes are always there. So this was five years ago, I think. We said, let's solve this through technology. So we developed a portal for the property managers and every property manager is using it, I get, Leonard Hydro, sorry, not I, get zero call on landlord-tenants dispute now. Can you believe that? That's an efficiency because now we are not doing that work that we used to do before. It's being done basically Application. by itself. Application. They are self-serving themselves. Mm -hmm. Similarly, as we showed to the city hall, paperless billing has helping us save money. And any saving we have is customer saving. I want customers to understand if I spend a dollar, it costs them that dollar. If I avoid a dollar, it saves them a dollar. There's a direct correlation to customer savings.
And that's why we, we, we remain so efficient. Wow. Well, we're talking with Vinay Sharma, CEO of London Hydro. I want to get into the future in just a moment. We'll take a quick break and then we'll talk about things like mergers and how London Hydro can grow outside itself. Because if you think about London Hydro, there should be borders and those borders should be the borders of London, Ontario. Well, maybe not. We'll get into that next. Vinay Sharma, CEO with London Hydro, is with us, and this is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We have London Hydro CEO Vinay Sharma in studio with us, and we're focusing in on the cost of hydro, not your overall bill. As Vinay pointed out earlier this half hour, on average, it costs about $418 a year for the London part of hydro that you pay, and that's all they can control. But we're a lot lower in London than either rural customers, who are sometimes more than double per year, or even some of the larger centers. And we've been looking at why that is and looking at software development that happens in-house in London that now other utilities, other agencies are able to make use of. But it was created here in London by synergies within London Hydro. Vinay, if we look at the future, we get a lot of mention every once in a while about mergers between utilities. It's a case where you have the opportunity to be either taken over by someone, you have the opportunity to grow larger and maybe take over other utilities to grow your utility. Where would you like to see London Hydro positioned? It's a very good question, and yes, indeed. So first of all, uh, you said uh, before the break that there are boundaries of London. You're right. City has boundaries. But electrical wires have no boundaries. <laughs> they run across the province, and we, our wires also cross, crisscross the city boundaries. <clears throat> but we have a responsibility of the wires, and we have that divided up between us and other hydros. So when you look at the classical hydro business model, Growth is essential because scale of operation of wires gives you more opportunities to become efficient. You know, when you fix it, you don't grow, then only growth is what customers are increasing in your territory. And for new connections, you get a little extra revenue. Otherwise, you don't grow. So the idea is by having a larger scale, you can grow. And growth, I think you will agree, is a essential for any successful business. And we are a corporation, and I think it is an, it's important to sort of uh, for listeners to to understand that Lun Hydro is Lunar Hydro Incorporated. We are a business for profit, taxable. We pay income tax just like anybody else, and hence, when you are a for profit, taxable, you have to grow. Now, growth comes in many f- shapes and forms for utilities. Uh, the merger and acquisition has happened, is happening in utility business, and it's a shareholder decision and shareholder motivation, and they can do when they want to or whichever uh, the direction they choose. My job is to see what I can do for London Hydro. And our strategy of growth is through technology platform. So as, as I said, we have a partnership with Whitby and Festival Hydro. And by having that partner, they're far away from us. They're not contiguous to us. But by being uh, a partner with them, we are sharing the investment in technology. 
So my customers, therefore, are experiencing the benefit of growth without growing physically. Gotcha. So you don't have to have the jurisdiction, jurisdiction over yes, that. You don't yes. have to have some of the headaches, Absolutely. but you are still partnering and providing them a service. Can we take one quick break and, and elaborate on that? Absolutely. Okay. We've got news yes. coming up with Jacqueline LaBelle, yes. and then we'll elaborate on that. Not the idea of swallowing up something so that you have all of the jurisdiction over it, but the idea of still being able to be involved, grow what you are doing, and at the same time, not have to be the supreme ruler. Yes. Ah, this is interesting. Vinay Sharma is with us, CEO of London Hydro. Jacqueline LaBelle is next with news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is a good thing we have comfortable chairs here at Chorus Radio London and inside the 980 CFPL studios because... Vinay Sharma, CEO of London Hydro, has agreed to stay for about five more minutes so that we could explore something that I find absolutely fascinating. The idea that London Hydro has created in-house a lot of things that are now being used outside the city of London. And before news with Jacqueline LaBelle, we asked the question, do you want to see London Hydro grow? Do you want to maybe absorb another utility, grow this utility? And Vina, you had pointed out, mm, not necessarily. What would you rather do? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I said in my comments, growth is essential, but it can be accomplished in many ways. And so uh, London Hydro's strategy at this time is to grow through collaboration on technology. And in doing so, uh, gains are for both our partner utilities and us. As I mentioned, Whitby, and, Whitby Hydro and uh, Festival Hydro are working with us. We are now proposing the same idea to many other utilities in Ontario. We are pursuing those opportunities. But we haven't stopped in Ontario only. We have gone across the country. As a matter of fact, we are pursuing something in Alberta, and we have sold software in San Francisco, California, and as well as working, uh, did just a small project, but good project for uh, Florida. Hmm. Yes. So this is going outside not just London's borders, Canada's yes. borders. Yes, going outside Canada's border. And I think uh, what we have developed, uh, I'm not sure uh, it was in the news earlier, White House recognized Leonard Hydro. We have uh, we were invited twice by the White House to a Washington D.C. conference to highlight what we have done with the standard technology for utilities, because idea in U.S. is to also open utilities for such businesses, and uh, and we are there. We are one of the successful story of Canadian utility. And recently, about two weeks ago, federal government asked from IEEE Canada what shall do with their energy data. And they are, IEEE Canada came to London Hydro and our team went over to Ottawa to present to parliamentary committee, a committee that what we have done, what we have developed is a model for all energy data across the nation. So this success uh, that London Hydro is enjoying on all fronts is helping us become efficient and hence reduce the cost to our customers. Because every revenue that we earn for the technology goes to offset the cost to our customers. And that is a that is a synergistic model for our partner utilities and for us both. So when we talk about that $418 on average that hydro costs coming from London Hydro, remember, there are other costs, 70 to 78%, that can't be controlled. They're coming from the province. We'll see what the Doug Ford government does with that. But a lot of times, that's just a fixed thing for the moment. But in London, we're not seeing added costs. 
we're only seeing about $418 a year. It sounds like that number is nice and secure. It's a nice and secure. There will be some inflationary increase, uh, you know, that uh, happens sure. with, the, with, the, with, the, with the, any operation. But uh, what we are doing is we are investing very carefully so that we can improve your uh, service and efficiency and yet not cost you as much. For example, look at Dundas Street right now. We're spending a lot of money in Dundas Street. But London Hydro. London Hydro is, okay. yes, uh, the Flex Street. But what we are doing now is we are reconfiguring because there was a 50, 60-year-old infrastructure. So we're reconfiguring and reconfiguring it. And Mike, you know what the beauty of that is? Once it's said and done, on that street, not a single customer would ever experience sustained outage of any kind. We are having a dual supply point with automated switches throughout so that if a malfunctioning device is there, we can quickly remove it. Customer will see a little flash or momentary outage. System is restored after removing the malfunction device. <laughs> and that is what we are designing. Similarly, uh, for downtown intensification, because there are a lot of condos, uh, high-rise going to go up in the downtown, we are intensifying and, and adding security to our wires, providing more than one supply point so that our customers downtown do not experience outages. And that is we are doing in suburban area as well. Same idea. So all that with a very careful review where and how to invest so that our customers do not experience a large increase in cost. Well, we've been able to learn all kinds of things. Vinay, I can't thank you enough for staying a little extra overtime. I thank the comfortable chairs, but I thank you most. Uh, Mike, it has been my pleasure, and I should come back again sometime in the future. Love to do it, because this has been really fascinating, and you know what? Pretty enlightening in terms of what another major item puts London on the map is doing all around Canada, and even, as Vinay has pointed out, even offshooting into the United States. Next stop, who knows, maybe around the world once this software is is continually picked up and some of the other advantages that London Hydro is providing are picked up. We'll take a quick break. Up next, we're going to look at the travel ban which was upheld in the United States today. The U.S. Supreme Court took a look at the travel ban and said, five to four, yeah, that should stay in place. Uh, how come? We'll address that. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Earlier today, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on something. Now, why does that matter around here? Well, it matters around here because we're looking at the travel ban in the United States. And there are nine members of the Supreme Court that looked at this that ruled on this, and the decision came out 5-4 to four in favor of upholding the travel ban in the United States that was created by Donald Trump's administration. So the challenge in this was that it discriminated against Muslims or exceeded the authority of the government, and it was decided, no, 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 that, that didn't happen. And as we heard from the Chief Justice... John Roberts in this case, he says presidents have substantial power to regulate immigration. He rejected the challenge that there is an anti-Muslim bias. Now, the other end of things, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in a dissent that a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim sentiment. 
And she said that her colleagues, quote, ignored the facts, misconstrued the legal precedent, and turned a blind eye to the pain and suffering the proclamation inflicts upon countless families and individuals, many of whom are United States citizens. We want to weigh into this a little bit further. And we're able to do that because joining us from Batista Smith Migration Law Group is Adrian Smith. Adrian, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. When you look at this decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court, did it surprise you, shock you? Did it not do either of those? I mean, I think as a Canadian immigration lawyer, it's quite shocking that the Supreme Court in the United States can can have this kind of endorsement for an immigration policy that's really rooted in discrimination. Um, when I saw that this decision had come out today, all I could think was, you know, this is validation for policies that are rooted in separating families and are rooted in in discrimination against Muslims. It might be something to look at the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court in this case, and it would probably be easy to divide along party lines. Is there any use in doing that? I mean, I don't, I don't think, I think as a lawyer, we always like to, you know, assume that judicial independence, which is such a cornerstone of our democracy, still does exist. So even in Canada, if we have a particular government that appoints a judge to the court, then it's assuming that they're going to be making decisions in accordance with the law and not with a particular political bent. So, you know, as a lawyer, I like to think that there is still that judicial impartiality. Adrian Smith from Batista Smith Migration Law Group joining us as we look at the U.S. Supreme Court decision to uphold the travel ban. Maybe we can take a step back for a moment because a lot of times you'll hear travel ban, travel ban, travel ban. You'll think, yeah, I think I know what that means. What exactly does this outline that becomes so contentious? So I think one of the most contentious parts of this travel ban is the fact that it suspends entry to people from particular countries. So citizens from Libya, Syria, Iran, Somalia, Yemen, and Sudan are banned from entering the United States. And I think why it's such a problem for people is that it's based on country of origin. And we know if we go back into, you know, some of the discriminatory roots of other immigration policies, including in Canada and the United States, you don't want to see anyone banned from a particular country simply because they're a citizen of that country. Complete generalization. Exactly. And I think that's, that's where the concern lies. There's also parts of the, of the, the executive order that, that capped the number of refugees that would be allowed into the United States. So some of the, the critics of this order said, how are you equating the need for national security and the need to keep out terrorism with people who are fleeing from situations of persecution. So I think it's it's equating capping refugees with the need to keep people out of the country, which was very upsetting for people. We know that another part of the ban talks about an indefinite suspended entry for all Syrian refugees. I mean, if, if we just contrast that with with Canadian immigration policy where we have welcomed a number of Syrian refugees from, you know, a very war-torn country, we can see how upsetting it is that 
the United States, um, you know, should really be a leader in protecting people from these sorts of war crimes. And instead, they're regressing the other way. If we look at a decision like this coming from the Supreme Court, is there any next action or once it hits there, has it reached the top of the mountain? I mean, it's reached the top of the mountain. And I think what what is going to be up to the people who are on the ground, both in the government and in private practitioners, is they're going to be looking at, you know, what other statutory authority and executive orders could be used in the future to dictate immigration policy. Really what this decision is about is it's saying, you know, there was an executive order that was made and that's within the jurisdiction of the president. And I think, you know, that finding on its own, what people will be looking for is they'll be looking to say, well, what other executive orders are going to be coming down the pike? We're talking with Adrian Smith from Batista Smith Migration Law Group about the Supreme Court decision that upholds the Donald Trump travel ban that was instituted shortly after Donald Trump became president of the United States. Adrian, if we look at Canada and immigration here, what sorts of things do you feel that we really need to know that maybe we're not hearing enough of? I mean, I think one part of Canadian immigration law that people aren't talking about a lot recently is um, the fact that the Canadian government actually also has some sort of similar policies, both in our history and in our recent history, similar to what's happening in the United States. So we saw the outcry last week when the president had a zero-tolerance policy towards families who, who were coming across the American border. We saw children being separated from their parents. And in fact, the Canadian government and Canadian immigration authorities up until 2016 were also detaining children with their parents at detention facilities, um, you know, both here in Toronto and across the country. Has that now stopped? You mentioned since 2016. So since 2016, my understanding is the number of children who have been detained has only been about 12. And prior to 2016, that number was hovering between about 250 and 300 children who are detained each year. Now, what is the philosophy behind that? Why is it even done? I mean, the philosophy behind it is that if there's no caregiver for the children, then they have to go into detention. So it was a little bit different than the United States, which was separating parents from their children. What was happening in Canada was that parents were being detained, and if they had children, then they were given the option of either putting their children into child protection or having their children come into detention. And obviously, as a parent, when you're given those two options, most parents are going to be to pick have their, having their kids with them instead of putting them through the child protection process and risking not being able to be a caregiver to them in the future. And can you not, under law, be detained with your child? Is that kind of a, an adult and juvenile form of law? So essentially what the Canadian immigration authorities say is they say there's nothing, there's nothing keeping those children in detention. We're not actually detaining the children, but we're detaining the parents, and the parents are given the option to take the kids into detention. So it's almost like a de facto law where they're not actively detaining children, but in practice, parents don't really have much of a choice. Hmm. Interesting. But since 2016, it's your understanding that we're seeing at least far less of this. Do you think it's something that will continue to be addressed in Canada based on the, I guess, the 
the attention that the United States has received? Absolutely. I think the detention regime generally in Canada is going to be under a lot of scrutiny um, currently. There's also been a, some, co- some court cases that have came out even within 2017 and 2018, which has really challenged this idea of indefinite detention of foreign nationals in Canada. We saw a case last year where a man was detained without charge for upwards of four years within the, the immigration detention system. And there's been a lot of criticism, I think, of that policy that we are detaining people for extended periods of time without some sort of bail conditions or or plan of release um, and, you know, without having a, a criminal conviction. It's it's often called, our immigration detention system in Canada is often called Guantanamo North because people are detained for indefinite periods without, you know, without any criminal conviction. Wow. Well, thank you for outlining everything that took place in the United States, the travel ban, and certainly some of the concerns in this country. Adrian, have a, a great afternoon. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. That is Adrian Smith. She is a lawyer who is from Batista Smith Migration Law Group, so she deals a lot with immigration in Canada. And you look at the travel ban, and, and again, we have to. We talked about this. Richard brought it up, and I think it it's a topic of conversation that, yes, will lead you into some of those things that you're not supposed to talk about if you're at a family barbecue or you're at a family reunion. What are the things they tell you not to bring up? Politics and religion. Stay away from those. And this kind of brings it up in both cases. But the idea of living case by case, you know, we've got a travel ban in the United States that says, hey, if you're from this country, I don't care who you are, what you do, you can't come in. We're not allowing you in. Well, why? You know, there are a lot of people that you could take on a case by case basis that you would say we would be lucky to have you here. Meanwhile, you've got people from any country that you would like to say, uh, no, you need to go back and get better at life. And then, then it would be a good idea for you to join us. So case by case is the way to do it. Do we have the people power to do that? Well, that's probably the ultimate issue. We're nearly out of time, but that's a topic of conversation that will definitely come up Again, we'll close out the show next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Got a note from Scott regarding jobs in the city that I just want to address. Scott says, we seem to be very interested about viewing things at the city through a particular lens. He mentions gender, diversity, inclusion. Why not jobs? With this action, we would take as mayor and city council contribute to job creation. Topic for another day. Thanks to Andrew Graham. My name is Mike Stubbs. News is next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.